Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today we will be diving into the sinking of SS Edmund Fitzgerald, a Great Lakes cargo freighter. Before we dive in, we must inform you. The story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the sinking of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before we begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. SS Edmund Fitzgerald, or the Mighty Fitz as she would be affectionately nicknamed, was born out of the iron and minerals industry and the need for cargo freighters to transport these goods. Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin was a huge investor in this industry and put forth a lump sum to construct the Fitz. In 1957, Great Lakes Engineering Works of River Rouge, Michigan was contracted by Northwestern Mutual to design and complete the ship to be the largest on the lakes, giving the instruction to make her, quote, within a foot of the maximum length allowed for passage through the soon-to-be-completed St. Lawrence Seaway. The Fitz would be the first ship built to be this size, making her the queen of the lakes, or the largest ship on the Great Lakes. The Fitz was valued at $7 million in 1957, making her worth roughly $73,805,409 in 2022 with inflation. SS Edmund Fitzgerald was 730 feet long, had a beam of 75 feet wide, and a 25-foot draft. The molded depth, or the vertical height of the hull, was 39 feet, and the hold depth, the height of the cargo hold, was 33 feet and 4 inches tall. She displaced 13,632 gross registered tons and carried 72,000 gallons of fuel oil at a time. Mighty Fitz could reach a regular service speed of 14 knots. Originally, her steam turbines were fed by boilers that ran off coal, but in her 1971 to 1972 winter layup, she was converted to running off of oil. Her keel was laid down August 7, 1957, and thus construction began on the large cargo vessel. Her hull was painted red, with the bridge and aft superstructure painted white, and a small yellow smokestack with a black tip near cistern. The Fitz was enormous and can carry 26,000 long tons of cargo in her massive cargo holds. By an ore and mineral freighter standards, the Mighty Fitz could have been the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. She was considered quite luxurious, with J.L. Hudson Company's designed furnishings, including tiled bathrooms, curtains over the portholes, leather swivel chairs in the guest lounge, and deep pile carpeting. There were two guest staterooms for any passengers that found themselves aboard the Fitz, a large galley and fully stocked pantry that supplied meals to the two dining rooms aboard, and air conditioning that extended to the crew quarters. Even the crew's staterooms had more amenities than seen on other ships, including a pilot house outfitted with what was described as state-of-the-art nautical equipment and a beautiful map room. The 29-man crew on the Edmund Fitzgerald got to experience all of the finer things the vessel could offer. The name Edmund Fitzgerald came from the president and chairman of the board for Northwestern Mutual. Fitzgerald's grandfather and all of his great uncles had been lake freighter captains, and his father owned the Milwaukee Dry Dock Company. This company was responsible for building and repairing different kinds of ships. Fitzgerald was a humble man and tried to convince Northwestern Mutual to name the ship either Centennial, Seaway, Milwaukee, or Northwestern instead, but the company insisted. 
All 36 board members voted in favor of naming the ship Edmund Fitzgerald, other than the man himself who abstained from voting. SS Edmund Fitzgerald was christened by Elizabeth Fitzgerald, the wife of the ship's namesake, and launched on June 7, 1958, with more than 15,000 people in attendance. When Mrs. Fitzgerald tried to christen the ship by smashing a champagne bottle on her bow, it took three tries to break the glass. And yes, dear listeners, it is often considered a bad omen if the christening goes south like this. And there was even more bad omens. It took 36 minutes for the shipyard crew to release the keel blocks, then launching the ship sideways. This created a huge wave that doused the spectators and the ship smacked right into the pier before righting herself. Later on September 22, 1958, SS Edmund Fitzgerald completed her nine days of sea trials and was deemed seaworthy. As for her career, it's important to first note that Northwestern Mutual generally chartered their ships out for work, and that's how they made their money. In the case of SS Edmund Fitzgerald, Northwestern Mutual signed a 25-year contract with Ogilvy Norton Corporation. Ogilvy Norton designated the Mighty Fitz the flagship of its Columbia transportation fleet, being how large and beautiful the brand new vessel was. Not only was she a beautiful ship, but a hard-working ship, setting and breaking records constantly. Her record cargo load for a single trip was a whopping 27,402 long tons, which she achieved in 1969. For 17 years, SS Edmund Fitzgerald transported taconite from Minnesota's Iron Range mines near Duluth to ironworks in Detroit, Toledo, and other ports. She set the seasonal cargo haul record six different occasions. It was a laborious task loading cargo onto the Fitz. The process took roughly four and a half hours, with unloading taking 14 hours on average. She could complete a round trip between Superior, Wisconsin and Detroit, Michigan in about five days and usually took 47 similar trips per shipping season. Most of the time, the route took SS Edmund Fitzgerald between Superior, Wisconsin and Toledo, Ohio, though this wasn't always the case. By November of 1975, Edmund Fitzgerald had 748 round trips under her belt and she'd covered more than a million miles on the Great Lakes. This distance was equated to roughly 44 trips around the globe. Boat watchers on the lakes gathered to view SS Edmund Fitzgerald anytime she passed through the locks due to her gargantuan size, Lux appearance, her string of seemingly unbreakable records and her DJ captain, Captain Peter Pulser. This jolly fellow was master of the fits for all of her cargo records, and he was best remembered for playing music day and night on the ship's intercom system when he passed through the St. Clair and Detroit rivers. Anytime the Fitz was in the Sioux locks, he would make an appearance from the pilot house and use a bullhorn to entertain spectators with details and commentary about the Edmund Fitzgerald. He was her biggest fan. In 1969, SS Edmund Fitzgerald was recognized for eight years of operation without a time-off worker injury and was given a safety award for this feat. The same year, the vessel ran aground and had to be refloated. In 1970, she collided with SS Hochelaga, both having to limp back to harbor. Later in 1970, she struck a wall of a lock, an accident that also happened in 1973 and 1974. For your information, a lock, like the Sioux locks, is a big concrete or metal area that separates two bodies of water and is used to raise the ship up or lower the ship down to match the water level of whatever body of water it is traversing into. Essentially, it fills with water or drains water in order to easily transition the ship to the next area it sails. Although she had these mishaps, none of them were considered out of the ordinary or necessarily all that serious. Freshwater ships like the Edmund Fitzgerald are built to last much longer since they are not exposed to the deteriorating salt water that ocean-faring ships are. Most freshwater vessels are built to last at least half a century if not longer, so Edmund Fitzgerald would have had a much longer career if she had never sunk. 
SS Edmund Fitzgerald's final voyage was to be like any other routine trip. She departed Superior, Wisconsin at 2.15 p.m. on November 9, 1975, under the command of her later captain, Ernest M. McSorley. He ran a much tighter ship than the previous captain, following procedure to the book and being very time-oriented. For this voyage, SS Edmund Fitzgerald was en route to the steel mill on Zug Island. Zug Island is a heavily industrialized island within the city limits of River Rouge near Detroit, Michigan, for anyone unfamiliar with the area. She was carrying a cargo of 26,116 long tons of taconite ore pellets. Being loaded opposite the Mighty Fitz was the SS Wolfred Sykes at the Burlington Northern Dock No. 1, and the Sykes left around 4.15 p.m., two hours after the Fitz. The crew of the SS Wolfred Sykes would later follow along with radio conversations between the Arthur M. Anderson and the Edmund Fitzgerald. Leaving the dock, Fitz quickly reached her service speed of 14.2 knots. Around 5 p.m. that day, the Mighty Fitz joined a second freighter, the Arthur M. Anderson, captained by Jesse B. Bernie Cooper. This freighter was heading to Gary, Indiana from Two Harbors, Minnesota. The weather was typical of a Great Lakes November, with a storm predicted to pass just south of Lake Superior by 7 a.m. on November 10, 1975. In the radio conversations overheard by the Wilfred Sykes, they heard the captains of Arthur M. Anderson and Edmund Fitzgerald discussing the possibility of gale force winds and deciding on taking the Lake Carriers Association downbound route. The National Weather Service, or NWS as we will call it moving forward, changed their forecasting at 7 p.m. on November 9th, issuing gale warnings for all of Lake Superior. Upon this realization, Arthur M. Anderson and Edmund Fitzgerald altered their courses to take refuge along the shore of Ontario, Canada. There, they encountered a winter storm around 1 a.m. on November 10th. It was then that SS Edmund Fitzgerald reported winds clocking at 52 knots and waves at least 10 feet high. Captain Packett of the Wilfred Sykes reported that he heard Captain McSorley of the Fitz had reduced speed because of the rough seas around 1 a.m. The stunt Packett, since it was unheard of for McSorley to slow down for any reason, he was keen on time management regardless of the risks. McSorley was quoted as saying to the Arthur M. Anderson that, quote, We're going to try for some leave from Isle Royale. You're walking away from us anyway. I can't stay with you. For anyone unsure of the term Lee, he's basically saying here he's trying to stay downwind from the storm and that Arthur M. Anderson was behind the fits. On November 10th at 2 a.m., the NWS changed their weather warning yet again from gale to storm warnings, forecasting winds between 35 and 50 knots. Until this moment, the Fitz had followed and kept up with the Anderson, who was traveling at a steady clip of 14.6 knots. However, the Fitz was faster than the Anderson and pulled ahead of them around 3 a.m. The eye of the storm passed over both ships and they experienced winds shifting from the northeast to south and then northwest. Around 2.45 p.m., the wind speeds picked up and it began to snow, reducing visibility drastically. Arthur M. Anderson lost sight of the Edmund Fitzgerald in the snowstorm, the ships being 16 miles apart. Shortly after 3.30 p.m., Captain McSorley radioed to the Arthur M. Anderson to report that the Fitz was taking on water and listing. The Fitz had also lost two vent covers and a fence railing. Two of the six bilge pumps ran continuously to try and dispel water from the flooding ship. McSorley said that he would slow the fits so that the Anderson could catch up. Shortly after this, the United States Coast Guard released a broadcast warning all ships on the lakes that the Sioux locks were closed and ships should seek safe anchorage. A little after 4.10 p.m. that day, McSorley once again radioed the Anderson to report a radar failure and asked if the Anderson could keep track of them since they were essentially blind. Of course, the Anderson obliged and the Fitz continued to slow down to close the 10-mile gap between them. 
For a short time, the Arthur M. Anderson monitored their radar and led the Edmund Fitzgerald toward the relative safety of Whitefish Bay. At 4.39 p.m., McSorley contacted the Coast Guard station in Grand Marais, Michigan, to ask if the Whitefish Point light and navigation beacon were operational. The Coast Guard replied that according to the monitoring on their end, neither was operational, leading McSorley to radio nearby ships in the Whitefish Point area to report the state of other navigational aids. Captain Cedric Woodward of Avafors replied between 5 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. that the Whitefish Point light was out, but that the radio beacon was still operational. Captain Cedric Woodward would later testify in front of the Marine Board that he overheard McSorley say to a crew member, don't allow nobody on deck. He also heard mumblings about a vent, but couldn't catch everything that McSorley said. A little while later, McSorley informed Woodward, I have a bad list. I have lost both radars and am taking heavy seas over the deck in one of the worst seas I've ever been in. It was getting rough for the Edmund Fitzgerald, and they were already sunk. They just didn't know it yet. As we know from discussing the sinking of the Carl D. Bradley, in heavy seas, older cargo ships built like the Fitz or the Carl D. were prone to sagging and breaking back in the center, and that was a real concern for a crew in the rough storm that they were encountering. Observation points all across Lake Superior and ships in the area recorded sustained winds of roughly 50 knots by the late afternoon on November 10th, Arthur M. Anderson herself logging the winds at 58 knots by 4.52 p.m. and waves at 25 feet high by 6 p.m. Arthur M. Anderson also experienced rogue gusts of wind between 70 and 75 knots and rogue waves to go along with it as high as 35 feet in the air. By 7.10 p.m., Captain Cooper of the Anderson radioed Captain McSorley of the Fitz, informing them of an upbound ship and asking them how they were faring. McSorley, a proud man, replied simply, we are holding our own. That, dear listeners, would be the last words heard from the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. No distress signal ever went out, and 10 minutes after these harrowing final words, SS Edmund Fitzgerald disappeared from the radar and the Anderson could not reach her over the radio. Since there was no trace of the missing ship, Captain Cooper radioed the Coast Guard in Salt St. Marie at 7.39 p.m. on the radio distress frequency. The Coast Guard replied to call on a separate channel in order to keep the emergency channel airwaves free due to difficulties in communication from the weather. Cooper then contacted the upbound saltwater vessel Nanfree and was told by them that the Fitz was also missing from their radar. Repeatedly, Cooper attempted to contact the Coast Guard to no avail until around 7.54 p.m. when the officer on duty asked him to keep watch for a 16-foot boat that was lost in the area. At about 8.25 p.m., Cooper again expressed his concern for the Fitz to the Coast Guard, reporting her missing by 9.03 p.m. Petty Officer Philip Branch later testified, I considered it serious, but at the time it was not urgent. The Coast Guard did not have the appropriate search and rescue vessels on standby in order to respond to the Edmund Fitzgerald disaster, and at 9 p.m. they asked the Arthur M. Anderson to return to where they last saw the Fitz and search for survivors. Around 10.30 p.m. they radioed all commercial vessels anchored in or around Whitefish Bay to help search for the missing cargo ship. The initial search was started by the Arthur M. Anderson, with the second freighter SS William Clayford joining in shortly after. A third freighter, SS Hilda Marjane, attempted to assist but were unable to due to the worsening weather. Coast Guard deployed a buoy tender called the Woodrush from Duluth, but it took two and a half hours to actually get the boat launched and a day to travel to the search area. By then, any survivors surely would have either frozen to death or drowned. The Coast Guard station out of Traverse City, Michigan, launched the HU-16 fixed-wing search aircraft and it arrived on scene at 10.53 p.m. with an HH-52 Coast Guard search helicopter arriving at 1 a.m. on November 11th. 
The Canadian Coast Guard also sent aircraft to join the three-day search, with Ontario Provincial Police setting up a search along the Ontario shores of Lake Superior. The search recovered lifeboats, life rafts, and other debris, but none of the 29 crew members were ever found. Most of these crew members hailed from Ohio and Wisconsin, with ages ranging from the oldest Captain McSorley at 63 and the youngest watchman Carl Peckle at 20. SS Edmund Fitzgerald is the largest and one of the most well-known vessels to ever sink on the Great Lakes. However, she isn't the only ship lying on the bottom of Lake Superior. Between the years of 1816 and 1975 alone, the Whitefish Point area had claimed at least 240 ships. The wreck of the Fitz was found three days later on November 14, 1975, about 15 miles west of Deadman's Cove, Ontario. She lies 530 feet below the surface, with a side-scan sonar survey being performed by the Coast Guard November 14 to the 16th of 1975 to determine what happened to the ship. The Fitz is in two pieces, her bow section standing upright in the mud about 170 feet away from the capsized stern section. The load of taconite pellets she was carrying litters the area between the two halves, with wreckage scattered about. There are six main schools of thought when it comes to trying to hypothesize what happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald. The five theories are, number one, the waves and weather hypothesis, number two, the rogue wave hypothesis, number three, the cargo hold flooding hypothesis. Number four, the shoaling hypothesis. Number five, the structural failure hypothesis. And number six, lastly, the topside damage hypothesis. To start, let's dig into the waves and weather hypothesis. According to this theory, heavy winds created huge waves that caused the ship to sag and break back. In 2005, the NWS ran a computer simulation that showed the wave and wind patterns between November 9th and 11th of 1975. There were two major areas of high wind over Lake Superior, and at 7 p.m., the southeastern part of the lake, where the Fitz was headed, was riddled with winds exceeding 43 knots. The ship sank at the eastern edge of the high wind area where the long fetch, or distance that wind blows over water, created enormous waves averaging over 23 feet. Due to these huge waves, it is highly likely that the Edmund Fitzgerald could have rolled heavily in the rocky weather. So it is entirely possible that this caused the sinking, or may have simply contributed to another one of these theories. The second is the rogue wave hypothesis. This is based upon the three sisters wave pattern often seen on the lakes, with three waves growing in size with each one battering a ship. The wave pattern was reported in the area of the Fitz at the time of her sinking, and a huge wave of 56 feet, entirely possible in this type of weather, could completely submerge the bow or stern section in the water and cause heavy flooding. Third, the cargo hold flooding hypothesis is based upon the idea that the hatches were not closed correctly and therefore led to the cargo area flooding over time, causing the ship to founder suddenly. It was commonplace back then for cargo freighters to embark on a journey without having closed all of the hatches, and makes this hypothesis likely. But there are doubts to this theory since it was brought about by the Coast Guard. The crewmen's families and various labor organizations believed the Coast Guard's findings could be tainted due to the fact that an honest inquiry would bring about questions of the Coast Guard's preparedness. The shoaling or grounding hypothesis is based upon the LCA's belief that instead of cargo hold flooding, the ship grounded herself on the Six Fathom Shoal northwest of Caribou Island, a shoal well known to be detrimental to ships. This hypothesis is supported by a Canadian hydrographic survey done in 1976 that states there was an unknown shoal running a mile east of Six Fathom Shoal, with Arthur M. Anderson confirming that the Edmund Fitzgerald sailed through this exact area. Essentially, the ship would have scraped her keel on the shoal and taken on water, breaking back and going under. 
The fifth theory is the structural failure hypothesis. Essentially, this means that the SS Edmund Fitzgerald's modified winter load line, the water line where the hull of the ship meets the surface of the water, made it possible for large waves to cause enormous stresses on the hull and cause it to fracture. This is solely based upon normal waves and not necessarily rogue waves that could cause even more damage. Personally, this is the hypothesis I subscribe to, being that almost the same thing happened to the Carl D. Bradley, and it was known back then that cargo ships ran a huge risk of breaking back and falling apart in heavy seas. The sixth and final hypothesis is the topside damage hypothesis. The Coast Guard cited topside damage as a reasonable explanation for the sinking, theorizing that the damage sustained to the fence rail and vents was possibly caused by a large floating object, like a log. Historian and mariner Mark Thompson surmised that something broke free from the Fitzgerald's deck, causing the damage to the vents and resulting in the flooding of either two ballast tanks or one ballast tank plus a walking tunnel. This would have caused the ship to begin to list and the flooding would have spread to the cargo hold, dooming the vessel. No matter what caused the sinking, seven main factors tied into the ship not being able to survive whatever damage she sustained. Complacency in regard to speed, poor maintenance of the mighty fits, inaccurate navigational charts, inconsistent weather forecasting, a lack of instrumentation like a fathometer, increased load lines and reduced freeboard, and the severe lack of watertight bulkheads. All of these factors tied into the sinking and either hastened the ship's sinking or doomed it altogether. Because of the sinking of the HSS Edmund Fitzgerald, the United States Coast Guard made multiple changes and requirements for safety regarding load lines, weather-tight integrity, search and rescue capabilities, life-saving equipment, crew training, loading manuals, and providing information to the ship captains on the Great Lakes. The following regulations were put into place. Number one, as of 1977, all vessels 1,600 gross registered tons and over must use depth finders. Number two, since 1980, all ships are required to have survival suits in each crew member's quarters and at their workstations. Each life jacket and survival suit is equipped with strobe lights to make spotting floating sailors easier. Number three, GPS is used on all ships and at all navigational points. Number four, emergency position indicating radio beacons, or EPIRBs, are required on all Great Lakes vessels for accurate locations in the event of a disaster. Number five, all navigational charts for Northeastern Lake Superior have been improved. Number six, NOAA revised their methods for predicting wave heights. Number seven, the Coast Guard rescinded their 1973 load line regulation amendment that allowed reduced freeboard loadings. And number eight, the Coast Guard inspectors now board all U.S. ships during their fall inspections to check hatch and vent closures and ensure all vessels have the required life-saving equipment on board. This episode hopes to remember the 29 brave men who tragically perished on the SS Edmund Fitzgerald and to bring awareness to the disaster. For more information on the Fitz and to find the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum where you can see remnants from the Fitz, visit shipwreckmuseum.com for more information. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode or are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. Check out Speed Force Media on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Shipwreck Sunday. Tune in next Sunday for the story of Cap Arcona, a Nazi prison ship that sank in World War II. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.